Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Mark chapter 1. It's on page 836. Before I get into the sermon, let me uh, call your attention to one of the announcements in the bulletin insert. Our Equip Conference, uh, if you've been here or for any amount of time, you know our Equip Conference. We have it each fall. It's our theological conference. This year it's October 25th to the 27th, so about a month away. Dr. Guy Richard, uh, the president of RTS in Atlanta, is going to be our speaker. Uh, He is uh, going to talk on the topic of prayer. Uh, A praying Christian uh, is is the topic. I hope you'll make plans to come and be a part of that. Uh, He will use several resources uh, for the conference. One of those main resources is a book by Douglas Kelly uh, called If God Already Knows, Why Pray? Uh, We have made that book available. Uh, I've forgotten the first service, and I've forgotten again here in the second to grab one of those copies to show it to you. But nevertheless, there are copies for sale in the Brickyard for $12. Uh, I hope you'll grab one of those books and read it. That will sort of prepare you uh, for the information that's coming. Uh, If you have money, you can drop it in an envelope that's on that table. If you do not, uh, take one. But no matter what, sign your name uh, so we know who is taking these copies. And we can track you down if you don't pay. Uh, anyway, I hope you'll, you'll take advantage of that. We'll have more copies in the weeks to come. Uh, capping off that Equip Conference weekend will be our Proclaim Hymn Sing. Uh, we did this last year, uh, so Sunday evening at 5 o'clock on October the 27th, we'll have our hymn sing in here like we did last year, and that'll sort of uh, be the, the, the topping off of that weekend. So please make plans to come and be a part of that. Mark chapter 1, uh, we're jumping in partway into the story here uh, in the 14th verse, uh, a lot has happened. (laughs) If you know much about Mark's gospel, uh, he doesn't belabor anything. Uh, He moves quickly from from thought to thought, from stories to to story. He tries to cram a lot into the 16 chapters that are here. And verses 14 through 20 is what I'll read in just a moment. Verses 16 to 20 is what I really want to focus on. And that's when Jesus calls his first disciples. Very simply, he says to them, follow me. What I want us to explore and, and, and learn this morning is what did that mean for his disciples? What did follow me mean for, for the 12? And then what does follow me mean for us? Uh, no doubt there are some similarities, but there are some differences. So uh, keep those things in mind as we, as we go along this morning. Beginning in verse 14, Mark chapter 1. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the boat mending the nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. And followed him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord, it will stand forever. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you help us understand your word this morning? Would you help us understand what it means to live a life of a disciple, a life of following you wherever you take us and whatever that means, always trusting you and coming under your authority for us. You're a good king and you love us. And we thank you for your love for us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
If you've ever read a book before, if you've ever seen a movie or, or watched a play, you know the importance of the opening scene, the opening chapter, maybe even the opening words. You know the importance of the opening drive of a football game. You're setting the tone. One team's trying to set the tempo at which they want to play. The opening line of a book or scene of a play or movie, it's, it's t- a tone setter. The characters are being introduced to you. The, the plot line is being introduced. There's things that you can't miss there in the opening scene and line that you may need, information you may need for the remainder of the book or the story. Jesus in this passage here is preaching what we think to be his very first sermon. It's a short sermon, but in true Mark and fashion, he doesn't give us the whole story. He just gives us the summary statement. A lot of commentators look at Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 and say, these are the two most important verses in the whole Bible. Now, I don't really know how you quantify that or how you even know what would be the most important, but their point is this. It summarizes all that Jesus will do. He's telling us the whole message, the whole point, everything he's trying to communicate is found when he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Literally what Jesus says there, if we took more of a wooden translation, it would be the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come to now, Jesus says. The kingdom of God is here. Why? Because the king's here. The king has come, he's starting his ministry, and everything he wants to tell you is subsumed under the one idea of the kingdom of God. Mark divides his gospel, his 16 chapters, into two equal parts. Chapters 1 through 8, it's all about the power of the king. Jesus has come teaching with authority. He has power over uh, the spiritual realm, casting out demons. He has, past, he has uh, power over the physical realm, the healing of diseases and cleansing from leprosy. The second half, chapters 9 through 16, is the suffering of Jesus. He turns his face towards Jerusalem, the, passage, the text tells us. He's resolute now. He's marching to Jerusalem to go to the cross. It's, it's his passion. It's his suffering. Jesus' message is all about the kingdom. The New Testament's all about the kingdom of God. Quite frankly, the whole Bible's about the kingdom of God. This growing thing that's happening is more and more people are subsumed under this kingdom and into this kingdom where they follow the king. They listen to his rules and his commands. They love the things that he loves and they do the things that he does. Jesus has come to deliver the message of the kingdom. That's the good news of himself. He's come to carry out the method of the kingdom, teaching and preaching. That's the delivery system. And he's come to carry out the ministry of the kingdom. He's going to preach with authority, unlike everyone else that's preaching, and he's going to heal with power. So wherever we see these things happening, we can be sure that's where the kingdom is. Wherever the king's being followed, his rules are being observed, his name is being worshipped that's most clearly seen, of course, in the local church. And the kingdom message was very simple from Jesus. Repent and believe in the gospel. Did he say more than this during the sermon? Probably he did. But Mark wants to, let me give you the bite-sized version. Repent of your sins, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn around and away from the way you used to live. Change your mind about yourself. You're not basically good. You know, your, your, your sin is not some indiscretions and some bad ideas. It, it comes out of the very heart. Okay, this is who you are. Change your mind about God. 
He loves you. He's your creator. You didn't used to think that. He sustains all things. He's sovereign over all things. He's good. I'm assuming in this sermon that we have some level of agreement with that. I'm assuming that you believe that, that you know that repentance is important, that you have indeed repented. I'm assuming that you've placed your hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That may not describe you. I, shouldn't, may, not, I may not should assume that. <laughs> if that doesn't describe you, the sermon is still for you in that you need to know what it, what it is that we are about, and it's following Jesus. For those of us who are Christians, we're to follow King Jesus. Well, what in the world does that mean? That's an important question, isn't it? We need, to, we need to know what that means. We need to have a right idea about it. Following Jesus means picking up our cross as he did and coming after him. Winning for Jesus meant first dying. Exaltation meant first humiliation. Following Jesus for the disciples meant going places they didn't want to go. It meant doing things that they did not want to do, just as it does for us. So maybe we need to recalibrate our minds about what it means to follow Jesus. You may scoff at the prosperity gospel preachers that tell you that come to Jesus and all your hopes and dreams come true. Come to Jesus and you'll be wealthy and you'll have all the things that you want. But I think sometimes we think discipleship is only a slightly watered-down version of that. We want discipleship to mean easy, to mean comfortable, to mean normal, we want it to, we're okay worshiping God, just, just don't ask too much of me. Just, just let it be doable and manageable. The call upon our lives from Jesus to follow me means go wherever he goes and do whatever he tells us to do. So the first point is, what did follow me, your outline is provided for you in your bulletin there, what did follow me mean for the disciples? Okay, this first point is informational. Okay, the application will come in the second two points. But we got to understand what it meant for the disciples before we, I think, can rightly understand what it means for us. Jesus here is calling his first disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. Follow me. He speaks with authority. The call rung, rings out from the shore, follow me. What do they do? They drop what they're doing, and they immediately follow Jesus. They left their nets at once. It must be understood, though, this is not the first time they have ever met Jesus. It's not the first call that they've received from him. The four gospel writers talk about the call of the disciples. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about it in the exact same way, basically the exact same story. John talks about it differently. There's no Sea of Galilee, there's no mending of nets. So we can assume this is a contradiction, which it is not, or perhaps John's telling a different story, which I think he is. In John chapter 1, Jesus is speaking to two of the disciples. He, they want to know where Jesus is staying, and he says, well, why don't you come and see? Let me come and see, and let me tell you about what I'm doing. He sees Nathaniel and Philip and says to Nathaniel, okay, you, you don't think anything good can come from Nazareth? Okay, why don't you just come and see? Let me invite you to come and listen for me. Follow me around, see what I'm about. That story happens one year prior to this story. This is not introduction to Jesus for the first time. They have some sort of a working knowledge about him. Jesus often calls us into discipleship over a process, not just a moment in time. He works on us. 
And I think that's what we see here. The word disciple refers to someone who is under discipline of a teacher. When Jesus calls Peter, Andrew, James, and John, he's enrolling them into school, quite literally. By contrast, one day he's going to send them out as apostles, and he's going to expect them to do the very thing that he had been doing. But for now, they've got to learn, because they don't know anything. They don't know who Jesus is. They don't know why he's here. Jesus is doing here something that's actually very common, but he does it in an unusual way. Having a rabbi or teacher with followers who follow him around, they stop and they get lectures that they're supposed to memorize, that was very normal in the world at this time. That wasn't weird. What was weird is disciples typically chose a tutor or rabbi and said, I want to learn from you. Can I be in your school? So they would. They, they would enroll, much like we enroll in college today. They would, they would take evaluations and exams to see if they made the cut, and they would then sit under a teacher or rabbi. But notice, people aren't coming to Jesus to learn. Jesus is going and picking his students for himself. That's the, that's the unusual part. He's handpicking the students rather than them coming to him to learn. Jesus is what is known as a peripatetic philosopher. That was also unusual. Rabbis of that day would sit down, his students would stand around him, and he would teach, and they would memorize. Jesus is peripatetic. That means he's given to walking. Jesus walked through life, and as he did, his disciples would follow behind him, and he would teach, and they would listen, and they would memorize, and they would remember, which would, of course, serve them well later in their life. A disciple was also a servant. He took care of the professor's shoes. He prepared the evening meals. Jesus is enrolling these men in the school. They went wherever Jesus went, and they did whatever Jesus said. So when Jesus approaches these men, there's no discussion. They're to put down what they have and to follow him. From this day forward, you're mine. You're my servants. And of course, every Christian who's followed Jesus since then has had to do the same. The call to follow him was a completely devoted life to Jesus. But before these men could do much of anything, they had to know him. They needed to know what he thought. They needed to know why he came. Before they could do the works of the kingdom, they needed to know the ways of the kingdom. They needed to listen. They needed to see the tenderness with which Jesus used in healing others in the way he spoke. They needed to see his compassion. They needed to sit at his feet and ponder his words. Jesus is changing their life. He's calling them into a most unusual journey. Their relationship to him will be the reason that they die. The reason they're beaten, the reason they're crucified, the reason they're scorned. But these men are also going to write the scriptures. They're going to preach amazing sermons where thousands are converted. They're going to plant churches. They first had to learn. So what did that mean for them? Well, Jesus was going to immensely expand their life. All their life at this point was kind of in and around the Sea of Galilee. They knew the trade of fishing. Christ is going to enlarge their world. They'll become theologians and thinkers and psychologists and strategists. John will become the bishop of Ephesus. Peter will go to Rome. Andrew, we think, went to the borders of Russia. All in response to the call, follow me. That's what it meant for them. A first a chance to learn and then to be sent out to the very corners of the world. So what does it mean for us? 
Secondly, let's talk about what it doesn't mean. Before we dive into the, the application of what we need to do, what does it not mean? What are our misunderstandings very often of being a disciple? Many have heard the gospel call. They've heard the good news preached to them, but they have not believed. They don't, they don't need more information. The information's there. They just haven't believed it. Why not? I think it's because many times we misinterpret what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Call it a misunderstanding, call it an intentional one, or they just didn't get correct information. But it's a misunderstanding nonetheless. It's a counterfeit call, we might say. It may appeal to us for a time, but it cannot carry the weight of discipleship. Tim Keller, in his book, King's Cross, it's a commentary, basically, on the book of Mark, he mentions two of these incorrect understandings. Number one is fanaticism. Nobody wants to be called a fanatic. We're afraid of this as Christians. I don't want to be strange, or at least too strange. I don't want to be a fanatic. We see fanatical religious people everywhere in the world today. Fundamentalism, fanaticism, it's on the rise. Radical Islam and jihadism. Fanatical Hinduism that persecutes Christians, that, that tries to convince their government that Christianity is illegal. People from the Westboro Baptist Church with their hate-filled signs and rallies. We want to distance ourselves from fanatics. That's a good thing. But we as Christians can fall into being fanatical sometimes too. And we do this when we fall into legalism. When we're thinking our goodness, or at least our perceived goodness, is the reason that God loves and accepts us. When we get far more worked up for a political cause or for a boycott than we do of actually following the king and listening to his commands. That's when we get fanatical. Where does fanaticism come from? It comes from self-righteousness and pride. So we look at fanatics and say, I don't want to be that, so let me counterbalance it. Let me be a moderate. Let me not go too crazy with it. But Jesus doesn't want this either. Jesus says some pretty fanatical things. He tells the rich young ruler to sell everything and follow Jesus. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. No one can know God, really love God, and really follow him unless it's through me. Jesus says in Luke 7, blessed are those who are not offended by me. In Luke 14, he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That doesn't sound very moderate. Of course, Jesus is not telling them to actively hate someone. Your love and devotion ought to be so great for him that all your other relationships look like you don't really care about him that much because of the way you love him. Jesus is also not calling us into moderation. Moderation is rooted in selfishness. We don't want to follow Jesus into something if it's uncomfortable if, or if other people are going to look at us funny for doing it. Many of us are happy to be Christians just so long as we don't have to be weird about it, right? And he's not calling you into moderation, into self-focus. He's calling you into a kingdom that is life-changing. Thirdly, and I would add this one, he's also not calling us into emotionalism. Younger generation, I think this is where we get it wrong. Older generation, I don't perceive that you struggle with this quite as much as the younger people do. We struggle with emotionalism. 
I need to have passion for this or passion for that. I need to be a passionate person. I need to have passion for the gospel. Passion's okay, but passion at some point ends, doesn't it? You can't be passionate about something for the rest of your life. I think we confirm this truth when we often we want to feel something rather than do something, as if our feelings are more authentic and right than our duty. It's a fair critique of the younger generation. Thomas Burgler, in his book, The Juvenilization of American Christianity, he says this, adolescent Christians see the Christian faith as ineffective unless it is affecting them emotionally. They're less likely than the older generation to settle for a faith that offers only a dutiful adherence to a particular doctrine, rule, or institution. On the other hand, they have a hard time keeping religious commitments when their emotions are not cooperating. They're drawn to religious practices that give them emotional highs and assume that that experience of strong feelings is the same as spiritual authenticity. They may be tempted to believe that God's main role is to make them feel better or feel enthused about the things going on in their life. Passion can only last for a season. No one is passionate again. No one's passionate about something their whole life. Emotion or passion has got to give way to something. Self-sacrificial duty. Passion may make us feel like our emotions are authentic, but it can't sustain, sustain the weight of discipleship and of bearing our cross. You know, anybody who's been married for longer than about 10 minutes understands this. You know that passion and infatuation has got to give way to something. Okay, there may be continued moments of passion in your marriage, but passion gives way to self-sacrificial duty. Let's talk about marriage for, in a really unromantic way for just a second, but that's what it is. You love and serve your spouse because it's your duty to do it, and you love them. Not because you're always so caught up in your emotions of and love, oh, this is, you know, it's, it's your duty to do it. And so that's why you do it. Your discipleship with Jesus is the same way. There's initial emotion and infatuation with it, but that can't sustain discipleship. You settle in to self-sacrificial love and duty, and you follow him. So what then is Jesus calling us to? He's calling us to be changed at the very core of who we are. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation, Paul tells us. The old stuff is being sucked out of you. The new good stuff is being put in, put in its place. The way you think is new. The way you hope is new. The way you act is noticeably different. But all of this falls under one idea. Follow me. Follow Jesus. And go where he wants you to go and do what he wants you to do. Thirdly and lastly, what does follow me mean for us? I think Jesus is telling us four things. First, he's telling us that we are under his authority. When Jesus calls the disciples, this is not a suggestion. He, when he says, follow me, he's not issuing an invitation. He's giving a command. It's a command to be either, either met with obedience or disobedience. Jesus Christ the King is not suggesting, he's not inviting, he's not hoping. He's saying, follow me. That's the thing about kings. Kings speak in one mood, don't they? They speak in the imperative mood. They don't ask questions. They don't make statements. They don't throw out ideas to be considered. They give orders and commands, and we follow them. 
because they're the king. Jesus is a lot of things to us. The Bible tells us that he's our older brother. He tells us that he's our friend, and he's our healer, and he's our savior, and, and we like to dwell on these things. But he's also your king, and he expects you to do the things that he says. Secondly, we're under his rule. When God tells us to repent, he's telling us to be involved in the things that he is doing. Yes, we all have our own professions. These men were fishers, fishermen. You may be given to preaching or doctoring or teaching or lawyering or parenting or selling or investing, whatever it may be. But these are important, no doubt, but they're not the primary thing that you're to be caught up with. You're to be caught up in the kingdom of God. Lord, how, do, how does my profession fit into your kingdom? How does my raising these children fit into your kingdom view for what you are doing? That ought to be a prayer of ours. Why? Because the task is urgent. Thirdly, we are carrying out his mission. I will make you fishers of men, Jesus says. Normally we assume that's a, a positive thing, and I think it is. But the Old Testament fishing imagery is always negative. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Habakkuk use a fishing imagery, fishing in judgment. It's this net, this net is closing. And it's going to gather all these fish together and some will be discarded and some will, some will remain. Judgment's coming is the point. And those that we love and those that we know, the decision is coming. Do you feel this sense of urgency in your own life and with the people that you love? Fourthly, we are to continue to learn his ways. You may not think of Jesus as a rabbi. He was. He is still your teacher. You're still to learn from him and to sit under his teaching. Jesus looked at these disciples. He was calling them to follow him, literally, through the towns of Galilee, even into the Gentile regions, and he was going to teach them. They were going to walk through life with him, and every day was a new lesson. Every day they would see more and more about what this kingdom vision was. I'll teach you the things of the kingdom of God, and once I leave, you're to gather others, and you're to teach them the things of the kingdom of God, and you're to be sent out. At our house, at the very top of our stairs, in between some of our bedrooms, we have what we call a reading nook. Uh, I told the first service, I don't know if any readings actually ever gone on in the reading nook, but ideally that's what it's meant for. There's little comfy pillows and bookshelves. I mean, it's very cute, but I don't know that we actually ever read there. Nathan, our seven-year-old, has, has a bookshelf. Miles, our four-year-old, has a bookshelf. You know, pictures and knickknacks all over it. On the bookshelf for Miles is this little picture that he made for Lauren for Mother's Day. And it has this simple quotation on it. It says, hold my hand and walk me through life. It's silly. I don't know why over the last few weeks it's made me so emotional to read it, but it has. Hold my hand and walk me through life. That's what we're to do as parents. Normally the lessons are not profound. They're very simple. You're teaching them things to say and not to say. What to do and not to do. You're teaching them how to live, how to be a member of your family. But it's discipleship nonetheless. You're walking through life with them. You're teaching them lessons of the kingdom of God. You're telling them simply about the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus was doing with these disciples. 
How are they going to grow the kingdom if they don't know what the kingdom is? How are our kids going to go out and be salt and light to this world? They don't even know what this is about. There's tenderness there. There's discipleship that's going on in our homes all the time. All of life with me, Jesus says, is one grand lesson. You will learn as you go. I don't expect you to know it all before you come to me. But you'll learn with me as we walk, and I'll prepare you for what's to come. I'm not asking you to be fanatical about it. I'm not inviting you into some movement. I'm not expecting you to be perfect. I'm not expecting you to know all the theology. But I am commanding you to follow me everywhere I go. Where are we going, Lord? Don't we have that question? Well, I'll tell you as we go. Where are we going to go? How do do we know when we get there? I'll tell you. What's going to happen to me along the way? Good stuff, bad stuff. I'll take care of you. We often look back to Jesus and say, Jesus, that all sounds good, but, and I will obey you if my career's thriving, if my health is good, if my family's the way I want it to be, if I get the things that I want. All you're really saying is that Jesus is just a means to your own end of selfishness. Tim Keller says again in his book, King's Cross, the gospel isn't advice. It's the good news that you don't need to earn your way to God. Jesus has already done that for you. And it's a gift that you receive by grace through God's thoroughly unmerited favor. If you seize that gift and keep holding on to it, Jesus' call call won't draw you into fanaticism or moderation, and I would add emotionalism, but into discipleship. Normally, when we talk about following Jesus, we say things such as, just rest in what Jesus has done for you. Or we might say, just ask Christ into your heart, or just develop a personal relationship with him. But that's not the way Jesus talks about it. When he talks about discipleship, he says, follow me. Now, could those things be included? Yes. But his language is, follow me where I'm going. Do the things I've told you to do. Believe the things I've told you to believe. Are you seeking to follow Jesus today? Are you seeking to come under his authority? When what he says and teaches goes against what you think and feel, you believe him and not yourself, because he's the king. Are you obeying his rule in the world, doing the things that he's asked you to do? Are you asking him, Lord, show me how to live for the kingdom of God in what I do? You've called me to make in Georgia. You've called me to be a teacher. You've called me to parent these particular children. Lord, how do I grow the kingdom in where I, ha- where I am? How does that fit underneath what you've called me to do and be? Lord, how do I carry out your mission? How do I share the gospel with the people that are around me? Invite them to come and do and be a part of what we're doing here at First Press. And are you continually seeking to learn his will? The life of a disciple is a life to keep learning, to keep sitting under his teaching, to keep memorizing his word. Are you involved in a group that's helping you do this? That's why we think Sunday school is so important. It helps us in our discipleship. That's why we think small groups are so important. If you want to be involved in one of those, please talk to us. We would like to get you plugged in. To the non-Christian who may be here this morning, to someone who you're not really sure whether you're a Christian or not, following Jesus means doing the things that he wants us to do. It doesn't mean we've, we have, we've cracked the code and we know the right way to live. It's we have submitted ourselves to the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it's not just because he's a king. He is, but he's also the one who died on the cross for us. Who saw how unclean and unfit and unholy you were for his kingdom. I'll make you. I'll make you fit. I'll make you holy. I'll make you clean if you trust in me. And that's what we're trying to do. We're not doing it perfectly, but we're doing it together as a group of people with a common faith trying to grow the kingdom of God here in Macon. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, I hope that the truth of it has crept into our hearts, that we might see our sin better. Lord, that we might also see the beauty of Christ. Lord, you have called us to follow you, that we would pray to you, that we might understand exactly what that means better and better in our lives. We would follow your rule, we would follow your word, and that we would worship you each and every day. Lord, give us grace and mercy to do just that. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.